0: Hello, and welcome to Thai Talks, where we interview founders, leaders, and experts from across the Thai network to get their insights about venture building. My name is Ritu Mehrish, I'm a Thai member and founder of the Leadership Troubleshooter. And it's my pleasure to be your host for this episode. months back, I had a conversation with my father and uh, he said to me, uh, he's 78, and uh, he said, you're doing fine in life. Have you become an angel investor yet? So, so the reason I tell you this, that everybody who has money or spare money either is an angel investor or wants to become an angel investor. But, and which is good, which is good for the ecosystem. Uh, but what does it really mean to be an angel investor? And then what are the legalities behind it, right? Like a lot of us understand, oh, you invest money in this company, that's it. But what is the what is the documentation required? What are the legalities? And that's what we're going to discover today with, with Karun. Okay, so I'm really going to start, Karun, by first question. What are the documents one should look at when you are investing?
1: Uh, thanks very much for having me over uh, today. I think from... An angel investing perspective, uh, there are a number of documents that we look at from a legal perspective. Obviously, if you're a founder, uh, one of the first things that you want to make sure that uh, want to make sure is that all your uh, information, your confidential information is actually protected. So you may have a non-disclosure agreement that you'll enter into with a potential investor to make sure that none of your proprietary knowledge or information is actually shared with anyone. Uh, Obviously, the next one will be a term sheet. There are two types of term sheets. One is a long-form term sheet or a short-form term sheet. What's the purpose of having a term sheet? Uh, It's goal setting. It's to make sure that people understand, the investors understand, and you understand what exactly it is that you're signing up for. And these these could be conceptual points that you discuss uh, in your term sheet. I'm a big fan of actually having a detailed long-form term sheet from a founder's perspective, it puts their, uh, they, they pay a lot more attention to the deal that they're trying to strike with investors. But if time is short, then yeah. obviously you need something which is already preset. It's like a, you know, cut uh, cut and paste, I don't want to say, but because each deal is kind of unique. Sure. But you want it to be more or less set in the sort of format, in the terms that you want to sort of agree to. The benefits of doing a term sheet is that, you know, you have exclusivity, you have a time period within which people can actually kick the tires of the company, understand whether you want to do this deal or not want to do the deal. Uh, And then you don't necessarily need to go out to multiple other partners or other parties to see whether you want to invest or not.
0: Uh, You know, I have a follow-up question, especially early-stage investments, right? Um, How much due diligence does one need to do?
1: That's a great question. Uh, (laughs) It's a question that we get asked all the time. Um, You know, due diligence is like if you're buying a car, How do you understand whether a car is a good car, suits your purposes, has a great engine, or doesn't have a great engine, has the right sort of papers, et cetera? So similar to any sort of investment that you make, you need to look under the hood. Mm. You have to understand that you are taking risk. You're taking on risk as an investor. But for you as a founder as well, you need to be able to sort of tell people that, look, I've given you everything that I know about the company. And the purpose of due diligence is, Basically, it's risk allocation. You know, when an investor comes in, do they actually appreciate and do they actually know what they're actually investing into? What are the sort of pitfalls that the company has had to go through? Have they resolved those pitfalls? Have they not resolved it? How can we cure those pitfalls? So due diligence, is a it's, it's an ongoing exercise. There's legal due diligence, there's financial due diligence, there's tax diligence, there's privacy, data privacy is such a big factor today. That's also important for you to sort of uh, delve deeper into Uh, tax, tax diligence, obviously, because, you know, you can't escape taxes. Uh, So there's a number of areas that you need to do diligence on for early stage startups very early. Obviously, a lot of the corporate governance issues may not already be there. So I think uh, for angel investors, it's important to diligence, the business of the company. What is it that the business? What is it that the business is actually trying to achieve? What is it that they actually have in place? The rest of it obviously can come later yeah. as the company grows. It has more people that they can in, invest in financial controllers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: What about leadership due diligence? Do people really do any due diligence on leadership of the of the founder or of the or, or the founding team? Like, to what extent do investors do that, or should uh, do that?
1: Absolutely. I think this is. I mean, who are you really investing in? You're investing in the vision of a founder. So the founder's uh, antecedents understanding who they are, what their reputation in the market is also super important. We're finding, even in the legal profession, we're finding that a lot of our clients are coming to us and asking us, you know, we need to do integrity diligence, which is basically understanding who the founders are. Can you help us with that? So I think from a founder's perspective, you have to adhere to certain norms, make sure that your reputation in the market is great, how you treat early stage investors, if you've done previous businesses is also very important. And obviously, your peers, your network, your sort of where you worked before all your sort of um, uh, experience all of that will also come to light so it's very very important i think you know with early stage investing it's the it's the person behind the company that you're investing in so it's very important
0: i'm glad you said that because i was just reading some articles and there was a thing about that how we, uh investors don't spend they don't say, they didn't say they don't spend any but they don't spend enough time maybe right there's a lot of focus more on the Excel spreadsheets, the business model, all of that, but that part is probably now maybe the focus, it's time where focus needs to shift when when they've seen so many companies fail on that aspect, right, so so I'm glad you said that. Uh, I wanna move on to my next question. What are the typical rights package that, uh, you know, from both sides, minority investors, or angels should look at, uh, but also from founders' perspective? Right, so so the rights package
1: is uh, a mixed bag depending on who is coming in at what point. So if you're an angel investor, so from an angel investor's perspective, you typically don't really have too many rights. What you're doing is you're putting in a small check into your company and you're you're not really looking into how the company is being run. All that you want is information rights. You know, so the company needs to or the founders need to actually get back in touch with you maybe on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis, share some financial information with you, make sure that, you know, any big major sort of decisions that they're making Uh, including for example a future fundraising round or if there's an acquisition opportunity or if there's a significant hire they need to let you know but there's nothing much that you can really do about it but if you're a late stage investor obviously affirmative voting rights is super important Hmm. the information that you have uh, with respect to the company how Uh, quickly do they actually send you all the information, financial information, primarily information with respect to customers, anything major that's happening with the company that's important. The other rights are obviously anti-dilution protections. Uh, if there's a further issuance of shares, how do you actually protect your interests? If there's an acquisition that happens, are you going to be dragged? Are you going to be tagged? These are rights that you'll negotiate into the agreement. But from an angel investor's perspective, you won't really get too many rights.
0: Where do people typically go to find out uh, more, you know, all the rules and all the things that you're talking about? Who do they go to? Apart from coming to you.
1: (laughs) I think nowadays you're finding that, you know, there's a lot of information out uh, available in the net. Um, You know, you've got in Singapore, you've got uh, Vima, which is a sort of platform where you get a lot of these standard form agreements. This is basically uh, Singapore lawyers who have gotten together and have created certain forms so that you don't really need to spend too much time, uh, you know, with legal counsel advising you. Uh, that also saves costs for everyone. You know, you want to get the deal done very quickly. You can do that in the U.S. You know, the most sort of evolved markets. You've got your uh, venture capital association forms uh, that people use. That's very standard form. You've got detailed explanations also as to what your liquidation preference rights are how anti dilution works what your preferential rights ought to be all of these you know uh, all of these rights are all set out out there in very very basic in, uh, basic uh, language so that everybody can understand so there's a lot a inf- lot of information out there and people i think have made a conscious effort uh, to make sure that uh, both founders angel investors people who want to be part of this ecosystem have all of the information that they okay. that they require yeah.
0: um what i also wanted to ask you is that when um, when do people come to you
1: (laughs) well people come to me at all stages Um, they come when they're early stage so i used to uh, be a mentor at an early stage incubator in singapore called jfdi um, many many years ago so i worked with a lot of the young companies who were set up under that incubator they came to me every time they had like a little, little bit of a legal issue on a licensing problem they'd be like do I need to get a license in order to to undertake this business in this market? Yes or no. And so I'd be able to help them with basic sort of legal advice. But of course the details, the devil always lies in the The details, right? So when you are entering into, say your series A agreements uh, and then later agreements, obviously that's when people want to make sure that their rights are protected. Uh, For founders, for example, their uh, ESOPs uh, people come and ask us questions as to how hmm. we need to structure these ESOPs right. when they are an acquisition target. Uh, when somebody is actually contemplating acquiring one of these companies, then you know the founders want to make sure that their rights are protected because one of the things is that you know your yeah. your obligations don't end upon you completing the deal right. uh, and taking the money. There are still indemnity obligations which have a certain tail period which you need to protect for. So how does a lawyer who uh, understands what investors or acquisition targets are looking for how do the lawyer sort of address that that's that's when you need someone who can help manage the deal so
0: so uh current I, w- I would assume uh that there probably the complexity is much more when there's cross-border transactions involved right um and i know we probably don't have so much time but i would love to hear your thoughts on that what no absolutely
1: Uh, Cross-border, if you're used to investing in a certain market, you expect that the legalities also should be the same in that particular market. That's not always the case. Uh, For example, Singapore is one of the easier jurisdictions for you to make investments and You have your exit rights, which are more, you know, well set out. You know that if there's uh, something were to go wrong, your redressal mechanisms are more uh the rule of law really applies so you know exactly what the outcome will be in certain other jurisdictions it's not so clear-cut uh so you need to understand what those risks are when you invest which is again goes back to my point on due diligence something that may be absolutely legit in a particular jurisdiction may not be legit in another jurisdiction data privacy each jurisdiction has its own nuances its own you know evolving area of law so as a result you need to be You need to make sure that you've got the right experts for that particular jurisdiction who will be able to help. Um, So that's one of the sort of pitfalls. The other is movement of money, you know. Investing into a jurisdiction which has got capital control, such as India, for example, has got various rules, regulations that you need to comply with. So debt, for example, as you as an investor putting debt into an Indian company, it may or may not fit in with what the external commercial borrowing guidelines are, which is, you know, India's... Reserve Bank of India, the India's sort of central bank, uh, sets out where you can actually put debt. So all of these factors are issues that you need to consider. Make sure you've got the right advice uh, when you walk into any particular jurisdiction because it's a complex world out there.
0: I can only imagine. Um, so last question before we ask the audience for questions. Um, what are the exit scenarios for founders as well as for investors, investors?
1: Well, the most popular one obviously is uh, IPOs or SPACs when SPACs were going uh, crazy a couple of years ago. Uh, the other is strategic sales. Obviously, you know, I gave an example of uh, an acquisition target coming and looking to acquire you. Founders exit, investors exit, everybody's happy, everybody walks away, you've got great <clears throat> money. Obviously, the IPO, the founders still wanna be there. They still want to run the company. And IPO is a significant exit for them. Uh, listing on a stock exchange anywhere in the world is quite a significant event for founders and for the for the company as a whole. Uh, you know, any sort of acquisition that comes, uh, you know, even if you want to look to buy a minority stake, maybe it may trigger your tag along or drag-along, right? So all of these things could get triggered. So these are your typical exit scenarios. These are their great exit scenarios. I don't want to talk about the downside exit scenarios because that's (laughs) maybe for another time. Uh, But these are the sort of exits that you would be looking for in your agreements.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Karan. I don't understand the legalities, but I I understood at least a bit of it today. Thank you. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you. But Um, if there's
1: any questions. Yes.
0: Any questions from the audience?
1: i was having a, a dinner chat with someone who runs an angel network in india and we were talking about how usually at the series a stage a lot of the initial angel investors especially get wiped out right um and there were there were sort of two arguments largely on the table which is one is they have taken the risk to invest so early on and so you're expecting an amazing multiple right that's one perspective the other perspective is when a series a investor comes on board at that stage you want advice on growing and scaling and the value of that angel investor isn't that's great, right? And so I just want to know what your perspective is between these two and uh, what have you seen uh, is, is better for startups as, as a founder, I'm asking. Well, it, it, it's different strokes for different folks, right? So if you think that the angel investors have been with you for a number of years and they still continue to have faith in you and they're looking for ultimate upside. So they don't need an exit scenario at your Series A level. They want an exit scenario at a much later stage. Then who are you to deprive them of that opportunity? They've helped you grow to a certain level, uh, and then you know if they want to see that upside until you go IPO or there's a significant strategic sale, then you know that's something that they're entitled to. Your agreements will provide for that. Obviously, if you want to go and convince them otherwise, then that's up to you. Um, I do know that it's it's easier for a brand new investor to deal with a simple simplified. Capital, uh, capital table. So that means you have less people that you need to interact with. Uh, so you need to factor that in your mind. Maybe at a later stage, you can take all your angel investors, you can create uh, an SPV or a pool, and you say that, look, you guys sit in this pool, all the decisions will come uh, from that pool in by a consensus sort of like basis. And you will then, this pool entity, this SPV will then be the shareholder on my cap table. So everybody will get their pro rata right sort of addressed. Uh, in that manner, so there's various ways for you to structure this. You know, it's 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 obviously a lot of dialogue that you need to have with your angel investors as well, um, and we enable what the founders want, what the investors want, and we can always provide for it. Question on the safe document: um, Do you feel that that is protecting enough or giving enough rights to an angel investor? Because effectively, you don't exactly get any real you know, uh, deadline, date, value, anything really out of it, it it really is contingent on a significant future event happening. So what are the other alternatives that an angel investor might explore? Great question. I think this is one of the issues with angel investing is that your risk appetite has to be high, right? Because these are fledgling companies. They're not uh, fully set out. There isn't publicly available information you probably aren't even doing any diligence on these companies. You've met the founder, the founder comes and tells you, look, I've got this great company. Uh, I think it's gonna go great guns. You will make a significant amount of investment. And you're like convinced. You have one, two, three, four, whatever, even 10 meetings, right? It's, uh, and then you say, right, you know what? I'm comfortable. When you put in money as an angel investor, you have to be able to walk away from that money also, right? That said, your safe agreement always has a maturity date. It says that, you know, it's basically it's basically a debt which converts into equity at a future event, right? You will have an interest co- component in your SAFE uh, agreement and you will also have a maturity date in your SAFE agreement. The maturity date will be like, you know, if you have not been able to undertake this future fundraising event by a certain period of time, then I should be entitled to get my money back, right? With interest. That's what the agreements provide for. Now, whether you as an investor can go and enforce on that, right, is a different question. Because by this point, the companies probably run out of funds. They don't really have any money. There's no personal liability that's been imposed on the founders themselves. So your risk appetite, like I said, needs to be super high for you to be able to take that hit.
0: Thank you so much for staying till the end. If you really like this episode, here are a few ways that you can help us and yourself. Subscribe to the show so you never miss another episode. Click through to the show notes to catch up on details you might have missed. Like or rate the episode and leave us a good review so others can find us. Share this episode or some highlights with a couple of people like you so they can benefit from all this great information. And lastly, share your takeaways on LinkedIn or Instagram so others like you can discover the show. Tag us so we can give you a shout out too. Thank you so much.